This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Welcome back to Working Overtime, the advice forward best editing Oscar to Working's best director. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. June, this is normally the time when I ask you how you are doing, but we just recorded a regular episode of Working <laughs> two hours ago. So have there been any major life changes in the last two hours? No, I went outside for a walk, but I did not have a massive artistic epiphany or any other kind of epiphany. So no. That's too bad. Mm -hmm. So what are we talking about today? Well, over the holidays, we got some messages from our listeners, and I thought we'd sift through the old mailbag and uh, take a couple of them out for a spin. What do you think? Oh, that sounds amazing. Let's do it. The first comes from a longtime listener, Mark, who has a really good question based on one of our recent episodes. Dear Working, I'm at the stage in my career that you've described a few times. I have so much work to do related to many creative projects. My wife and I also manage a busy family life, and together this long list of tasks is not doable by two people. As you suggest, I've been trying to hire help for a while, and it's turned out to be much harder than just finding the money to do it. My question is, once a person decides to hire help, what then? We have some funds to dedicate to this purpose, but they're not unlimited and they need to cover a lot of ground. In any given moment, I need help with scheduling, corresponding, running random errands, etc. I don't lack for candidates. I teach part-time and work with early career people in my field and have many people interested in assisting me with projects, but the needs for a variety of skills, knowledge, availability, and how much I can actually oversee them has resulted in several short-term work arrangements that fizzle out. What's your advice for someone who has bought your pitch for why they need help but can't stick the landing? How can I choose the right person to hire, engage them in an ongoing way, and provide the appropriate amount of direction so that over time my projects become easier to manage and my workload becomes lighter? All right. That is a lot, June. First of all, I just want to say thanks to Mark for writing in. And also, although I'm sure things feel overwhelming... Congratulations on getting to the place where you need this help and even more importantly, recognizing that you need help. I struggle so much in asking for help. I am really impressed by your even starting to figure all of this out. So June, let me ask you first, have you ever been in a position like Mark's? 
Not so much in my creative life, or I guess I should say that I may have been in that position, but I didn't have the sort of emotional intelligence that Mark is displaying to realize that, well, you know what, I can get myself out of this feeling of overwhelm. But mm. I have been involved with hiring in, you know, kind of work context. So I guess I have some insight on this topic. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I've had paid research assistants. Our mutual friend Ray Binstock yes. is actually uh, joining me for the, my third book to help Whoa. me out with that one as well. And occasionally I've had someone do a few hours of personal assistant stuff for me and my wife when things just really get too unmanageable. But you definitely have a lot more experience in hiring than I do. I have some experience in hiring them for the ways Mark is asking about. Yeah. So hopefully our wonder twin powers will activate <laughs> and take the form of a gorilla and a mop <laughs> bucket and some good advice after this. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey listeners, do you have any tips or questions about the creative process? Get in touch, share your advice, and well, also we'd love to hear your questions. What do you need help with? You can email us at working at slate.com or even better, you can call us and leave a message at 304-933-9675. That's 304-933-WORK. Okay, now back to working overtime. And we're back. My first thought here is part of the problem 
that Mark is facing is like many people in creative fields, he has a busy personal life and a busy professional life. And sometimes those things are totally merged and sometimes they just look like they are merged. It could just be difficult to separate all that stuff. So my first advice is to actually just sit down and list which tasks have to do with work and which ones have to do with home. Just draw a line down the middle of a piece of paper and just start listing things. Some things are going to, you know, overlap, right? But to the extent that you can avoid putting something in both columns, try to avoid it. Is it 80% personal? Great, put it in the personal column, you know? Mm -hmm. And then once you have that list, Start trying to figure out how much time in an average week or two or or even month since your schedule changes a lot is taken up by these tasks. Just get as firm a picture possible of what you really need. And related to this, just to see what's really going on, this is a tip I read about and I started using and it really works. Get a planner and at the end of the day, Try to fill it out with what you actually did hour to hour throughout the day. This is not an appointment calendar. This is actually a record-keeping exercise of your day-to-day work. And you will actually get a really accurate picture of what the problems are. You know, you'll look at it and you'll be like, three hours a day answering email? What Mm -hmm. the fuck is going on? I need (laughs) something, you know? I know that that sounds like I'm actually giving our listener more work, which I guess I am, but it won't take that much time and it will actually make solving the rest of this much easier, I think. What what, what do you think, June? Is this good advice or am I full of baloney? (laughs) Baloney? Never. First, I have to say, Isaac, I think you've hit on the most important and in many ways the trickiest aspect of any hiring conundrum, which is figuring out what and how much help is needed. And of course, how much you can afford. I think, yes, it does take time to do that. It's an effort, but it can really pay off down the line. And I also think the steps you suggest are absolutely essential. So Mark, really take this project seriously. And also notice things like, where's the pain? Where's the stuff you just hate to do and therefore spend too much or too little time doing? What have you identified as essential and still not gotten to? Is it really essential? It is? Okay, put that high on the list. Then you need to figure out how many hours you can afford to hire someone for in a given period. Here, I want to call it something you mentioned as a problem you've encountered in the past. Make sure you buy yourself enough time to supervise their work. You mentioned having had problems where your inability to oversee the people you hired meant you couldn't make productive use of the time and skills you were purchasing. You just can't overlook or ignore that part of this project. Make sure you know exactly what it is you want this person to do for you, and then make time in your schedule to make sure that it's getting done. Otherwise, you're wasting your money and everyone's time. And this isn't something you'll need to do forever, but it is really important to dedicate time to it when you're working with a new person or this is a new task you're getting help with. I also think you may need to hire more than one person. The tasks you outline are pretty disparate. Running errands and performing housework don't require the same skill set as correspondence and submitting grant reports. You'll probably get those tasks done more efficiently by dividing them. And I promise I'm not just saying that because I could absolutely smash correspondence and grant reports, but would be absolutely useless at errands and housekeeping. But of course, you still have to find the right person to take care of the tasks you've identified. And there is no doubt that that 
is a really tough job. Isaac, do you have any advice for hiring the right person? You know, sometimes I have done a great job at that. And sometimes I've done a really terrible job. <laughs> uh, I think the good news is that since Mark teaches part-time, he not only has candidates, but people he can easily contact for reliable references on those candidates. Also, if it's possible, or maybe he's already doing this, I don't know, to make assisting him in his creative work an official internship. So that way the student would get credit as well as pay. It's helping them to build their resume. Uh, that probably will get greater buy-in because mm -hmm. you're not really, they're not doing glamorous work, right? And right. so the buy-in part of it can be really helpful. But beyond that, I defer to you <laughs> because you have way more management and hiring experience than I do. Well, you're kind, Isaac. But I do want to note that there is obviously a lot of difference between hiring for a job that is a recognizable step on a career ladder and one that is basically assisting someone with their work on a part-time basis. And I don't say that to be harsh or to drag our lovely listener. I just think it's important to recognize that you will keep a housekeeper because you are paying them appropriately and treating them well. You will not keep them because they're ambitious and they're keen to break into the creative field you happen to work in, which might be so if you had a sort of vocationally related job. Things are different when we're talking about tasks that involve your creative work. They will hopefully be picking up useful skills that will serve them in their own creative work. That said, I think ultimately clarity is key. Clarity about what the work will be, what it will entail, and what the person doing it will learn from it. That not only helps the person you're going to hire decide if it's a job they're interested in and will want to keep doing for more than a couple of weeks, you will know what to ask them when you're interviewing them. You will be able to figure out if they're performing the job adequately and you will be able to assign appropriate tasks. The more general and amorphous a job description is, the less likely you are to find someone appropriate and ultimately for either party to be happy. Yes. And then, of course, there is the third wrinkle that Mark discusses, which I think is really the $6 million question or whatever, training and management. Yeah, This is where I really think keeping the personal and professional jobs separate can help. The personal stuff, at least in my experience, tends to be less skill-based if it's, you know, like, if it's like dropping off packages, getting your dry cleaning and, you know, going over the calendar or whatever, like that doesn't take a lot of training. So it may be you actually just want to start there because once the pressure is off one area, it will make managing all the rest of the areas a lot easier. You'll be less exhausted. And then you can start working on, on getting someone to do the professional stuff. Either way, what I have found works best is to have a checklist of things you need the person to do, a deadline you need them done by and then orient them on the tasks. You know, if you're working with students, you may need to do the extra step and literally be like, here is how you keep track of what I'm telling you. <laughs> Write down notes and here is how you meet that deadline. Put the tasks in your calendar, you know, because you're kind of training them yep. in how to have a job. But there's only so much you can do in terms of making sure people do their jobs. At the end of the day, they're going to do it or they're not. You're going to keep working with them or you won't. And that is why very clear deadlines help. Look, someone either gets the work done on time or you need to move on, right? Absolutely. You have hired this person because you need help. If they're not helping, the whole project is pointless. I guess I want to tell Mark, I can tell from your email that you are feeling overwhelmed. As Isaac said, doing the work of breaking in the tasks in the way we've been describing, it's work and it will take some time. But I really do think it will help address that overwhelm that's 
surely getting in the way of your creativity, probably not helping your home life. So just make the time. And I think it actually will allow you to get the help you need and ultimately be happier. Yes. Let me just add on to that. Yes. And it to say uh, (laughs) that's one of the reasons why I was thinking, you know, whatever the low hanging fruit is, if you can get someone in to do that quickly, who doesn't need a lot of training, you know, that'll help you feel less overwhelmed. And then you're spending less mental energy on Mm -hmm. feeling bad, uh, which frees up more mental energy to actually solve the problem. The other thing that I would say is that if you're in a place where you need this help, that probably means, you know, you're doing well and you're doing well in your field and you're someone that people will know and know that they want to work for. And that will actually be helpful. You're not, you know, at the beginning of your career needing a bunch of extra help. You've arrived. You have a certain establishment and reputation, and you can use that to help you find people. I really hope that this has been helpful, Mark. Please keep in touch and let us know how it's going. For the rest of you, we will be back shortly with a listener email that is, shall we say, displeased with something I said in an earlier episode. Hey, listeners, this is where I ask you to subscribe to Working. It really helps us. And best of all, it helps you to get every single episode of our fantastic podcast. If you enjoy it, hey, why don't you also leave us a review, a rating, Maybe hit the star if you listen on Overcast. Whatever it is that you can do to show your appreciation, please know that we appreciate your appreciation. Thanks for listening and thanks for supporting us. Welcome back. In a recent Working Overtime episode, June asked me about authors hiring their own editors, copy editors, publicists, things of that nature to help them with getting their books done. And... I kind of went a bit on a off-the-cuff rant, shall we say. Let's roll the tape, Kevin. I will admit I have a little bit of mixed feelings about what you mm. just said. Not about Harper Bliss hiring editors. Like if you're self-publishing, you know, protect yourself, get a copy yeah. editor, <laughs> for example. But I do think there's this growing trend in the publishing industry of people not really doing their jobs and expecting authors to pay consultants mm. or freelancers mm. or whatever to do them. If you have an agent, and you are a nonfiction writer and your agent is not good at giving you feedback or they are giving you tsuris about, you know, how much work they're doing on the book proposal, fire them. Like, hands down, find another agent. It's it's mm-hmm. it's completely absurd. I had friends who read The Method and gave me notes as it was written. They were incredibly important to the making of that book. I also, though, have a brilliant editor in Ben Hyman at Bloomsbury, who was very involved, gave great notes. Sometimes those notes were just us having lunch together and talking about things. Sometimes those notes were line edits, but, you know, uh, he was really important to that process. I am very lucky. I have had friends at other houses who got essentially ghosted from their editors, basically oh had no notes at all and had to figure Ugh. it out on their own. That's a serious abrogation of their duty. And don't even get me started on all the problems various authors I know have had with their in-house publicists. I love my publicist. I also am friends with publicists for hire that I know, but in a just world, there would not be publicists for hire because the people at the publishing house would again, do their jobs. And frankly, there would be enough of them hired and on salary that they could do their jobs, right? It's not necessarily, in a lot of cases, people are doing the best they can with the limited resources they have. And the publishing industry is a business is in all kinds of trouble. And I recognize that, but it still just makes me crazy. 
So one of our listeners wrote in to complain about what I said, and I wanted to make sure that their concerns, which are very valid, get a hearing. So here we go. Dear Working, I was glad to see this week's topic because I'm beyond burnt out and was looking for ideas to start 2024 fresh. This year has left no time for creative work given the nonstop demands of my full-time and freelance jobs in publishing. So I had to laugh when I heard Isaac Butler rant about publishing people not doing their jobs. In a way, he's not wrong, but it applies to everyone in publishing, including the authors, and it's down to pay and people. I work for one of the big three, and there's not enough staff and definitely not enough salary to allow people the time and focus to do their work their job title indicates. More than half of my department freelances as a necessity, which isn't at all unusual. The on-sales date rules everything, and the pressure to get volume out or hit a certain pub date can mean people working overtime to do quality work on unbelievably tight schedules, often filling in the gaps left by the stages before them. Corporate capitalism has made this scenario pretty much the norm now, but that's down to the business interests, not the people who are working so hard to get the best product out into the world, usually just because they love books and writing and stories so very much. So, June, I guess... I, I should just say, I totally get why someone working for one of the big publishers would hear what I said and feel this way in response. It is really hard out there for everyone. It's only gotten more so since we've gone, you know, back to in-person work and inflation and wages haven't kept up. And, you know, things things are hard out there. I really was not intending to just pay lip service to that difficulty at the end of my little ad-libbed speech, but rather to acknowledge that everyone is trying to make miracles happen with very few resources. At the same time, I do stand by the larger point of what I said, if not the tone I used in saying it. You asked me about a specific thing that connected to a problem a friend of mine was having, like that I'd just been consulting with them about like the day before. Mm. I was pretty pissed. You know, those two things kind of swirled together. But the underlying point I stand by advances are getting smaller and smaller and more and more often authors are being pressured into or expected to spend what little they make hiring other people to do jobs that traditionally were handled fully and capably by their publishers in-house. That's just true. And I think we would all agree that whatever the reasons for that are, it's a shame. Authors are the ones whose labor provides the material for which the entire industry exists. They do not get steady salaries and they do not get benefits. They are in an extremely precarious position. And that precarity is only made worse by not having the kind of emotional security of knowing that that work will be adequately shepherded and shaped and fixed and pruned and everything else during the editing and producing process. I've heard many horror stories from authors about this sort of thing you know, turning in manuscripts and having them go into production with zero edits, ah. for example, which, you know, like uh, if no. you're an author and you're hearing this, you're, you're feeling ill or receiving the first pass page proofs and saying that the person couldn't make any changes other than proofreading. You know, it's like just very, very difficult stuff. And that was what was motivating me to speak up about it. I think our listener does a great job of explaining why this is the case. And I think we are both in agreement that this state of affairs is bad for everyone. I wish I knew how to fix it. I feel extremely lucky to be at Bloomsbury, where the entire 
editing and production team has always been all in on my work. They did incredible, incredible stuff with the method and they could not have been more helpful every step of the way. But I also know from talking to my compatriots in the writing field that this is rarer than anyone would really like. June, do you have anything to add? Oh, man. First of all, right on, Isaac. I just want to say, person in publishing, that I hear you just about everyone, except perhaps the people at the very, very top of the org chart, just have too little time to do too many tasks. And it goes without saying, unfortunately, for too little money. Here, as in so many places, the system is just broken. But Isaac, I agree with your fundamental point here. The more things the author is expected to pay for, the harder it is for people who don't have family money or any other access to funds to access opportunities and get their ideas out there. And that is antithetical to the very purpose of publishing. And it just sucks. Yeah. And I, I don't think anyone goes into publishing wanting that. To yeah, be the case. No kidding, Authors no don't kidding. go into that. You know, people don't go into editing being like, I know what I'll do. I'll not edit <laughs> manuscripts that come across right. my desk. Like no one feels good about this. Right. It's right. just like none of us know exactly how to fix it. You know, and I don't mean to be hopeless about it. I think there is a fix. We just don't really know what it is. I do want to say thank you so much to our letter writers, both of them, Mark and Person in Publishing, for writing us with your questions and concerns. I really, really appreciate it. That's all the time we have for this episode, but let me leave you with one last piece of advice. I think you should subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have ideas for things we could do better, questions you'd like us to address, success stories that make you feel great, we would love to hear from you. You can send us an email at workingatslate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK and leave a voicemail. We love voicemails. We love to hear your voice. Get in touch. If you'd like to support what we do, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus. You'll get bonus content, including exclusive episodes of Slow Burn and Decoder Ring, and you'll be supporting what we do right here on Working. Working Overtime is produced by the great Kevin Bendis. Our series producer is the lovely and talented Cameron Drews. Thanks to them both. We will be back on Sunday with a brand new episode of Working, and in two weeks, we'll have another Working Overtime. Until then, get back to work. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.